Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing indigenous cinema productions within different national and institutional settings. Our guest is Dr. Carmen Cray. She is Stalo from Chiem First Nation and is Assistant Professor of Aboriginal Communication and Media Studies in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. Her research examines the rise of indigenous media in Canada since the early 1990s and the institutions of media culture undergirding this phenomenon. Carmen, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you, um, how did you get to focus on these research interests? Why are they interesting to you and why are they an important area for us to study? A lot of it has to do with, obviously, my own Indigenous background. Um, and what really sort of started me on the path to studying Indigenous media really had to do with the fact that um, the first time I ever encountered um, Indigenous media um, was in a class in university. So, you know, th this was a, this was incredibly eye-opening. It was we watched excerpts from um, Alanisa Bamsawin's film Ganasatagi, 270 Years of Resistance, which was uh, from 1993 and documents the Oka crisis in um, Quebec. And um, from the perspective, like in a sense, from the point of view of the Mohawk people, which by which I mean, you know, Alanis and her cameras were inside the Mohawk encampment. And uh, you know, closely uh, work closely with the um, protesters and warriors within the camp. So, uh, number one, I didn't had never heard about the Oka crisis, though it did happen. You know, when I would have been a teenager, um, I don't remember having any discussions about it. And then, second, here was this documentary about this um, history-altering event. Uh, and, and conflict between Indigenous people in Canada and the Canadian state. Um, and, you know, this documentary uh, uh, that was really involved in um, the events, and it took me until university to see this. So I was pretty astonished by that. Um, and really, you know, then then very much ended up following like what else have indigenous people been making that I've never seen and so you know from moving from um, my coursework in general started to really focus on you know what is indigenous media like who are the filmmakers what is the history when did it start what kinds of formats and genres so I had to look at a lot of different factors that really shaped this um, phenomenon really of indigenous media development and um, you know it, it, it I realized that this was a very complex phenomenon that there was a lot of different factors involved you know indigenous social movements um, shifts in national law and cultural policy uh, developments in media technologies and uh, the ways in which um, the existence of and ways in which institutions of media culture in Canada were responsive to these changes. And so when we start in 1990, that's a really key year because that was the year the Oka crisis took place. 
Um, and that really catalyzed a lot of activity, a lot of um, indigenous resistance, responsiveness, um, and created a rationale and motivation for um, both the state and publicly funded um, cultural institutions to respond in kind. Like, how are we going to represent, create space for, set aside resources for indigenous representation here? So that that was re really brought me to realize, well, what you know, this this didn't happen in a vacuum. There was a lot of factors, but this is also a lot of resources that were needed in order to make this possible. And institutions are really sites where all of these forces coalesce. And so that's what drew me to this question. Okay, what? How? How do we? conceptualize institutions as sites of Indigenous media production? And how did Indigenous producers actually um, work with within, uh, adjacent to um, these institutions to produce their work? Great. Yeah. So today we're specifically discussing your article, Screen Text and Institutional Context, Indigenous Film Production and Academic Research Institutions, which was published in the journal Native American Indigenous Studies, Volume 4, in 2017. Uh, so you've talked a little bit about the general uh, project. Can you give us a brief history of how you got to this uh, particular essay uh, from this larger project, and how and whether the ideas changed in the, in the process of, of researching it and writing it? Um, so yes, th there was a couple of ways I, I came to this project. One which was based on um, my awareness of these um, sites where Indigenous media was being produced, these institutional contexts, really realizing actually that while something like the National Film Board of Canada has received a lot of attention, a lot of other institutions had not yet really been explored as contributing to this history, as of underpinning it. So one Thing I became aware of as myself as a, as a graduate student in a PhD program in, um, in a uh, cinema studies program within an institution was that universities are the sites, frequently the sites of training programs um, for Indigenous filmmakers. So that was one, one crucial part of it was my awareness, like, have we really examined um, post-secondary institutions as sites of uh, Indigenous production. And the other part of it was, um, you know, this is getting down to like the nuts and bolts of this particular article, was that um, as a grad student, I was in a documentary film class and, um, you know, we had to formulate our own projects. And in the back of my mind, I'd always, I think this is true for a lot of it, um, of Indigenous media studies students, uh, academics, um, audiences, filmmakers, is an awareness of Arlene Bowman's Navajo talking picture. And we, you know, it's very well known the scene where Arlene uh, and her film crew seem to sort of um, just... Uh, arrives at her grandmother's home with this camera and sort of pursues her grandmother through her own home while her grandmother is trying to avoid the camera. And um, 
It's very painful to watch. A lot of people describe it as very, you know, uncomfortable to see a young, um, a young Indigenous woman who's not listening to her grandmother's clear, explicit, um, uh, you know, request that they leave, that they not put her on camera, um, and that that had always been a film that I, I did want to engage with, but a little bit more critically because of the way it's discussed, it's sort of, you know, been condemned and critiqued. And I think a lot of that is really valid, but I wanted to really delve into it further. At the same time, I um, had seen recently seen a documentary by Banshee Hanous, who is New Hulk, um, and her film Cry Rock, uh, had come out and it was it's quite a beautiful meditation on this question that Banshee herself um, asks in the film um, she wants to ask her grandmother who is a New Hulk speaker if she can record her stories uh, or she's thinking of considering this question of asking her grandmother if she can record her stories and yet cannot bring herself to do it and the film becomes this meditation on what it means to record Indigenous oral narratives. How does it change the story? Like what, it asks the question, okay, what are oral narratives then? And then what is the recording of an oral narrative then? So it, it's investigating those questions. And it's very thoughtful and contemplative and meditative and, um, in a sense, putting those two films together, you could sort of see a lot of thematic similarities. You know, two Indigenous women, neither of whom speak their traditional language, but are um, seeking connection with their grandmothers who have traditional knowledge um, and live many of their cultural traditions in order to make a kind of connection. So thematically, I was astonished by these films that had so much in common, and yet we know those outcomes of those films are very, very different. Um, so when I, you know, the parallel, I was, I was drawn by the parallels, but I also realized in bringing them together that what I was doing is creating a problematic binary between both documentaries. One which would be like the bad object, like this is how you don't, use tech, film technology this is not how you treat or engage with your grandmother and then the the good object which is you know the the debate around the ethics and consequences of using film technology or other um, digital recording technologies and I realized that was really unfair like some I was going to be oversimplifying my analysis if I did it that way there's something wrong with this way I'm approaching these films. How else can I approach them to move past the thematic analysis and talk about why these films that do share these similarities have very, very different outcomes? Like, how can I talk about those in ways that help us understand where the filmmakers are coming from? Um, what are the factors shaping their representational strategies and what's the context for that? And it was, well, they're both coming out of university programs um, in, and uh, are producing films in relation to um, 
debates and discourses around Indigenous representation, documentary practice, um, and documentary conventions that are specific to their separate contexts, and then went and investigated those institutions. So that's what set up then this logic, like, okay, if we look at the institutional context, we can understand more fully the debates and strategies um, and tensions that appear on screen. Um, and those do very much have a material context that uh, to that point I hadn't seen really acknowledged or examined in a lot of depth. Right. And it's, it's very, it becomes a, a way more nuanced argument, right? Once you start thinking about that infrastructure or that larger context mm -hmm. for them, um, as you point out, the, the two thematically, the two could just seem like they're the same film, but done differently. And therefore one is the good way and one is, is the bad way. But once you start thinking about the, where they're coming from and what kind of, um, traditions they were following, it, it makes more sense in terms of why they would make the kinds of creative decisions that they do, right? Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that I find really interesting is we, so we have a tradition of, or academic tradition of people looking at uh, films coming out of particular industries or being produced in particular um, um, nations, let's say, but you're looking even more minutely to where, are they studying, right? So the academic institutions where they're coming from and therefore who are they in conversation in terms of um, what does it mean to create a narrative about indigenous communities, right? Um, so could you detail a little bit about the this contrast, um, specifically um, who Bowman was in conversation with uh, in the 80s to produce Navajo Talking Picture and then who Hanus is sort of uh, in conversation with or working with to produce cry rock that that allow them to think of different strategies or or influence to think of different strategies. Yes, um, I in the article I talk about those the the prevailing way um, way that indigenous studies as an area of scholarship um, and academic practice how indigenous studies was being conceptualized and practiced within two different academic contexts. So in a way we are, you know, there is a bit of a um, evolutionary kind of dynamic because of course, indigenous studies as it was practiced in at the time um, that Bowman is producing her film, you know, the, the field has moved on um, and continued to evolve um, by the time Hanus produces Cry Rock in 2010. So there's a 20 year difference. So uh, taking that in mind though, um, and given that the very, the material reality that both, that both films were, were produced in relation to indigenous studies, it became a question of what was it, how was ind indigenous studies conceptualized um, and framed? At UCLA, there was a, a, a tradition of um, sort of revisionist anthropology that started in, in the 60s. And UCLA was certainly really a, a site for the debate around anthropology. And it's uh, as itself a colonial um, discipline um, and um, highly uh, paternalistic 
um, highly problematic for constructing knowledge about different or other cultures um, from the perspective of outsiders or who were typically white men um, with some, you know, key white women uh, historically involved. But, you know, this has historically been a highly, highly problematic discipline uh, for Indigenous people um, and a lot of groups worldwide. And so in the 60s, with the, a lot of the social shifts that were taking place, the civil rights movements, um, a, a lot of scrutiny came to anthropology and really what was it doing as a discipline? Like who was producing knowledge for whom? So the revisionist anthropologists kind were thinking about how do we reframe the power dynamic here? And a lot of their strategies in that era involved um, changing perspective, meaning how do we equip the people that we want to study with the means of representing themselves? Um, that will be more accurate, right? We'll have, you know, there, there's still a problem there. there there's an yeah. attempt to right the ship and um, put the film camera in the hands of indigenous people to produce their knowledge about themselves. But we still know that was just to shore up anthropology, make it conti continue to make it relevant because it's still producing knowledge about indigenous peoples, um, but it's indigenous people doing it. So uh, it's it must be more real and authentic to do that, um, more accurate than what we've been doing. So. This, I, I found, was the context for the, the, the very recent history and context for Navajo Talking Picture. It's, in many ways, the program, the film studies program, um, inherited from the revisionist anthropologist movement um, through some of the key thinkers and academics and practitioners who were involved with the film um, program, the MFA program, at... UCLA. And similarly, um, Hanus, you know, came out of the First Nations, what was then the First Nations Studies program at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, and, you know, 20 years on, uh, I myself went through that program, so I was very familiar with its curriculum. We were kind of past the question of authenticity and accuracy and really thinking about um, what happens to knowledge, what happens when we record certain forms of knowledge or um, when we uh, when we zoom in for a close-up. Like the, the idea of that this is really well articulated by um, Cree and Métis filmmaker Loretta Todd, it's like when, you know, so much of her film ethic was about resisting the conventions of filmmaking, like documentary filmmaking, where when a person's having an emotional moment, typically the camera zooms in on that moment to capture, like right where the tears are coming down the person's face, to capture that moment. Um, and she talks about uh, when she was making a film about a residential school survivor and her camera person who was non-indigenous went to zoom in 
on this person as they're crying, telling their story, and she stops the film, the camera person, and zooms back out to give her space and privacy. Right. So the question of film ethics was much over, you know, rightly over two decades had evolved a lot and was involved involving a lot of um, the, the, the discussion had shifted to really think about how, what does it mean when we use certain techniques? Right. And essentially it's a, you see this movement towards it's, I would say it's not, it sounds like it's not necessarily a negation of the sort of debates in the post-civil rights movement era in the 80s of giving cameras to Indigenous people to record. Um, that in itself was a move forward uh, from not having Indigenous people record, right? right? But then 20 years later, the question became, even if uh, Indigenous people are using these media technologies, are we replicating the, the sort of same structures that um, white documentarians have been, have been doing, right? Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that you you pinpoint or you zero in on is this question about the relationship between um, oral narrative traditions and uh, recording media, right? And this tension on, is that possible, right? And it's a tension that Hanus also has in her film, right? Could, could you talk to us a little bit about that tension of um, as it's played out in Indigenous studies and then as it's played out in the film as well? Mm-hmm. I think what... Uh, Cry Rock is is making really clear is this idea that a recording is not the same as being told a story uh, in person by somebody with whom you have a relationship in a particular moment in time in a particular geographical location to which the story refers. So this has been um, the 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 nature and practice of oral traditions is certainly an area of study in anthropology um, where there have been people who've been, who've made really, really, you know, non-Indigenous people who've made very, very important interventions into this idea that, uh, into helping non-Indigenous audiences and um, academics really understand that um, oral traditions are a particular mode of learning and understanding. And that that involve sets of relations um, that are temporally bound, um, that are shared in relation to particular events or ceremonies, um, and in particular places, um, because they refer to particular geogra- geographies, particular figures in that geography, like mountains, like rocks, like um, like bodies of water, um, and it that mode of oral storytelling is not the same as filmmaking. The w- the places I saw these debates most concretely, um, or these claims being made, have been in institutional documents, like in in reports, in public materials, in um, proposals. Um, that I've looked at from different media producing institutions is that frequently when these programs are pitched, like programs for training Indigenous people in filmmaking and providing funding to Indigenous filmmakers, they often use the language of 
uh, filmmaking can be used to preserve and sustain traditional cultural practices. So this is why it's so imperative to set up these programs and to properly fund them and fund these filmmakers and produce this project. Um, I approached those claims, which are, you know, these are indigenous authors and applicants making these arguments. I see those in many ways as, a, you know, a necessary strategy in order to um, get a hold of resources and funding in, for their purposes in order to really support and sustain Indigenous filmmakers and their rights to um, produce images and sound and uh, projects that are meaningful to those people and their communities. And it's interesting that you, you point out the this sort of language gets replicated in things like applications or institutional documents, uh, but it's very sometimes very much used uh, strategically or tactically, we could say, right? Uh, so students might know that producing a film will not be the same as an oral narrative, and uh, scholars might know that too. But in some ways, it's a way to be legible to institutions that are not indigenous institutions, but they're the ones that hold the, the resources. Um, so it's doing that sort of um, double speak, if you will, right, or, or translation there. Um, but then Cry Rock goes in and both does that, but also very uh, makes that the center point of the film, right, is the, the whole, um, as you pointed out, Hanus reflecting and debating whether or not she could actually ask her grandmother to to, to be in the film and, and, and record her language. Could, could you mention some of the um, strategies? That, so, so, in the, so in the aftermath or the, in the end, she, she decides that she can't, right? It's not something that, um, that she can do or that will be fruitful in those ways because of the, the, the disparity between oral narratives and, and film. But you do point out that there are some interesting strategies, uh, creative strategies that she uses to move through these thinking or uh, this processing. Could you point us to some of these ideas that you think are productive in how Hanus treats this, this tension between oral narrative and, um, and filmmaking practices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I think the one that really did strike me and I talk about it in the article um, was a parallel um, kind of storyline, for lack of a better word, in the film where we're watching her grandmother um, basically, uh, you know, butcher a fish, like a large fish. She's cutting it up, um, uh, filleting it, um, wind drying it, like laying it out um, to wind dry. It, it's a fascinating, you know, approach that the film takes and as I watched it, I really realized um, so much of Cry Rock is pedagogical. Like it's really trying to teach us something. And it has to be explicit because if it's trying to clarify the difference between oral traditions and storytelling and trying to use Western technologies to document, um, it has to heighten those distinctions. And um, and really make them explicit. So it's very instructive. This is actually really crucial part of us learning about what she means by oral tradition. And 
it really to me is the camera is in a sense mimicking the behavior um the sort of demeanor of a person who's learning from a grandmother her grandmother um by what observing paying attention uh and um participating in the sense of being a presence there but without being an active one and in terms of the larger pedagogical intent i really saw that as a way of of modeling a a way of being to in which to learn from your elders from your grandmother it's a way of of showing us it's like you just you pay attention you're learning something all the time and it requires a focus and attentiveness um and patience and often silence um in order to um understand something about the world uh understand about how to do something knowledge is a practice it's something that involves a way of being in relation to another person uh in a particular place um and that is a real reframing of how we think about knowledge especially you know for me as an academic um for a lot of students who have a kind of orientation to knowledge as you know i go to my lecture i get download i process later um can i have those slides you know professor can i have yeah. the slides from the lecture today um what's going to be on the exam you know that that way of learning is this kind of like a consuming way of being it's like you know as though you can package something and hand it off yeah. um and that would be that's kind of what underpins this idea of recording indigenous knowledge it's like oh we packaged it it's a dvd now or it's on this drive or whatever it's in the cloud um that is completely different it's a completely different way of thinking about and valuing knowledge and learning um and so this this parallel narrative really is modeling a different way of how you come to learn it's not packaged it's not it's not explicit it's not um it requires something different of you than to just show up like it's it's an attentiveness and presence um and that to me it was very a very profound intervention yeah and and similarly to to what you're pointing out the distinction between uh thinking of learning as just downloading information uh versus learning as part of a, an ongoing process right that requires constant reflection um and can never be contained to just having something in the cloud or downloading slides or so on and so forth it the film does that too because in the end of the day it is a a film right it's a half hour sort of a short mm-hmm. but the value of it is not in itself the recording but actually the process that the recording is getting us through right it's how it's teaching us it's teaching us how to learn yeah. and it's teaching us how to look to be able to learn um in a particular way right um, basically by saying i couldn't i could never capture this in a way that you could just download and have um uh, and watch but i can point to the ways that someone if they wanted to could um process this or or learn about this right yeah absolutely and even the the story of the sninik um that's told in the film um in a way and you know then we see Clyde and another community member they go to the cry rock and and point it out like you see this in the documentary and they're like that's where it happened um 
so in a sense, the film allows us, gives us a, gives us a, a window like into, oh, that's the cry rock. Like we can see it on camera. But I think I say in the article um, that the film is really showing us what it can't show us. Yeah. And I think you also point this out, even the use of um, animation in what is ostensibly a documentary is part of this process of the films showing you what it can show you, right? Because by using animation, it very um, so reflexively points to this is a representation um, that is not going to be the thing because I can't show you the thing, but I can show you something that will give you a sense of it um, at the same time pointing the limits of that of that representation as well. Right, and I, I, I really appreciate that the animation is really, it's more about, as you're saying, it's about showing you, um, it's not giving you the knowledge, it's showing you sort of the sets of relations required in order to gain, in order to um, produce meaningful knowledge. So the animation is really beautiful in the set and also very instructive itself because it's showing you by the words floating off and like kind of living in the surroundings as an elder tells a group of children the names for things that you know it floats off and it connects to what it refers to like the animation the word goes and connects to the thing um it really um those those names for things those stories for things refer to something within a particular environment it's a it's a per particular kind of world and the language is the connective tissue between the world and the person. So that um, that really that that can't, you can't replicate that on camera, but you can talk about um, how it works. But you can't really show people on camera those relations. So what your article does is compare these two different academic settings uh, in two different historical moments and how these two indigenous filmmakers sort of approach uh, a similar thematic, right? If we were to sort of zoom out to use a, a film metaphor and think about um, what this sort of comparative work does, how do you see, the question is, how do you see the this sort of competitive work in terms of thinking about what we could generally call the study of indigenous media, right? Across different institutional contexts and across um, different national contexts, right? Um, how do we think about indigenous media broadly? Or is it that we can think of indigenous media broadly and we're actually thinking uh, at a more local level of um, media being produced by indigenous people in a particular place at a particular time? You know, I, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, within indigenous, what, you know, we can call sort of indigenous media worlds, like different networks and communities of indigenous artists and filmmakers, critics and academics who all um, intersect and communicate um, and read each other's work and talk about it. Um, you know, this is a question of like, what do we, you know, what do we mean by indigenous? Like, what does indigenous refer to? And um, one thing I think it was is really helpful, um, especially for students to think about is, is maybe conceptualizing indigenous not as a set of features, like 
oh, this is what it looks like. This is how it acts. This is what it sounds like. You know, the aesthetics of indigenous, you know, like we need to problemize this idea that in indigenous anything can be codified to express particular features um, because obviously indigenous communities, traditions, cultures are um, differ, can differ vastly from one another. Um, but I like to think about, um, and I talk about this in, in, and it will come up in my book, I talk about the utility and value of this concept of native nationalism. Um, and I came across that concept in Michelle Stewart's 2001 dissertation on Indigenous documentary in Canada and the US. Um, and she talks about Native nationalism. It, it's not a, a specific cultural identity. It's, she's talking about it's a, it's a shared experience uh, and pre of a pre-colonial history. Um, and within that, there are different um, indigenous nations with their own particular practices. So it, it has utility in the sense of defining an a people and an experience that pre-exists colonial history. Um, and therefore, whose claims, um, whose political traditions, cultural traditions, community formations, land use and stewardship um, all pre-exist the existence of colonial nation states that, that we are that is our reality right now. Mm -hmm. So those are going to have um, different claims, um, different legal relationships, policy relationships with the state, with municipal and local governance. Um, those are going to be different than those of other minoritized groups. What Stuart is really offering is this is um, an understanding of nationhood not as an as a kind of essentialist claim, like, but rather that um, in order for indigenous sovereignty and autonomy to exist, um, it must engage with the prevailing and hegemonic power structures. Um, that exist in order to make its claims at all. So right. nationhood is constructed and deployed within a system that only really recognizes other nations, right? So right. It, it, it allows, um, it makes visible this concept of a kind of political, cultural, historical sovereignty that um, in the terms that are recognized by the majority. I think native nationalism is much more helpful in the sense that it's that it uh, it defines a difference and a shared historical experience, but it also accommodates specificity of different nations within it. Um, could we talk about gender? Because both films that you analyzed are produced and directed by women, and you're focusing on their relationship with their grandmothers. To what extent is this? Folk, is this focus indicative of other indigenous film? Um, and is, is, or is it a deliberate choice on your part um, as well to focus on that? This is an observation that has been made over and over and so many people are interested in asking is like, why are so many of, uh, of indigenous filmmakers women? Like it's more than 50%. And uh, I think in the 
2017 um, Indigenous Film and Media Arts Festival, like Imaginative. Um, in 2017, 72% of the films that it programmed and screened were by women. And this is the biggest Indigenous film festival in the world. Um, and I and I know this not just because I go, but because my ne- my work is going to, I, uh, my next piece is going to look at the presence of Indigenous um, film festivals in constructing how we understand what Indigenous media is. Um, but this is an, an extraordinary number. And so they, this is, um, I've asked many Indigenous filmmakers, like, why do they think so many um, Indigenous filmmakers are women? And there isn't ever one answer. Like, there's, there is the, you know, historical convergence of, um, of a lot of um, marginalized communities and groups and their demands that uh, to to be given resources and to be represented as a part of nation states. Um, so those coming out of you know the, a lot of the social movements of the 60s, 70s, 80s onward, um, we did see formulations of specific um, programs, studios. Um, for women and people of color, uh, indigenous people, um, LGBTQ. Um, and so they were all sort of in proximity, both like, you know, in terms of policy, in terms of social movements, in terms of practice. So we can see like that there's ways that, um, you know, indigenous women during these times, you know, would certainly were potentially um, having uh being given more access and more resources to produce work but a lot of people talk about the cultural dimension of indigenous um roles and accountability and thinking that indigenous women often um are the organizers often the drivers often the those who innovate earliest um who pick up test and um, implement technologies um, differently, uh, and to, you know, and see what are their applications limitations. Um, all, and that's just in terms of practice, that's often been the case. So it is something that I, that I'm thinking about really hard. And, um, I'm working closely with a colleague, Joanna Hearn at the university of Missouri, um, on a book collection that asks that question, um, that focuses by focusing specifically on, um, indigenous women's uh, indigenous women in North America and digital media and looking at how indigenous women have been innovators in this area actually going back into like the late 60s in you know in the in the you know first days of um, a shift towards computerized and digital media um, so you mentioned this was uh, work you were or that came out part of your dissertation how have you built on it since, or uh, where is it going now? Um, so the article is really the focus of one of the chapters of um, both my dissertation and what will be my, my book when um, I get back to that and uh, manage to get it um, down the pipeline. Um, I... I have also like the, the, the way the dissertation is set up is sort of looks at, I designed it so that 
uh, what I was, um, my main intention was there are these under-examined institutional contexts. We have a lot of scholarship about the National Film Board and its role in creating programs and studios for Indigenous people, um, filmmakers, artists, um, producers. So if we look away from the NFB, if we look at these other institutions, who do we see and what do we see being produced? So I was more interested in thinking, well, we have to expand the institutional focus away from the NFB um, and look at these other sites of production. So, you know, post-secondary programs is and uh, institutions are one. Um, but there's also provincial television, which I hadn't even thought of. But once I looked at that um, catalog I was creating of Indigenous film, I saw this these provincial broadcasters popping up. And I'm like, I don't think we've ever talked about, not, you know, substantially. It's fascinating to me because those films are really, or documentary pieces are really unwieldy because on the one hand, they come in with this really, it's maybe familiar to you, the, the um, synthesizer music kind of leading in. And then you have this like heavy handed um, voiceover mm-hmm. telling very explicitly saying, what is this program about and what you're gonna learn about it and who it's gonna involve. And then we have these sequences where the filmmaker has been um, interviewing Indigenous students in in high school. And in those, and also their teachers and um, parents. And in those interviews, the camera is simply allowing the person to speak and talk and talk. And there's very long takes. Um, with no voiceover, um, no music, nothing. It's just them talking. And that jarred so much against this very heavy handed, heavily produced kind of voiceover. And I was like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. And really what I was seeing was happening was, okay, so within educational programming, here are the conventions. They have to be very explicit pedagogical. You have to guide the viewer. Um, you have to tell them what's going to happen and what they're going to get out of it. And yet, in these interviews, really, the filmmaker is allowing the person to speak for themselves. They're not trying to force perspective on the interviewee. They're, he's trying to allow them to the time and space to really unfold their story and perspective. And that's coming from a really critical ethic in Indigenous filmmaking, which is allow the person to speak. Like, let them tell their story and you simply listen. So what seems like a very, you know, some people might describe it as like awkward or uncomfortable or clumsy. What I'm actually, what I actually see are two conflicting ways of framing um, learning, like, and framing um, how we should engage in learning. And uh, this is sort of relating back to Cry Rock in the sense that there is, a kind of contemplative, attentive, attentiveness to the interviewees, and that collides with this impar- institutional imperative of provincial broadcasting, which is to, you know, package it, shape it, sh- tell you what you're going to learn. Um, and once we saw these like kind of conflicting points of view and value systems, that text made a lot more sense 
um, and made clear what the what the filmmaker was trying to do that otherwise you might never think about or even like chances are you wouldn't see this piece um, but the other chances that you might dismiss it for being what seems like uncomfortable and that to me was the point it was like because this is a very complicated text and that's how we can uh, if we look at the institutional context as a part of the production we can see what exactly the filmmaker is trying to intervene in and transform what I want, really wanted to do with the article as a lead out to um, my book, which is forthcoming, is that I'm modeling a form of institutional analysis. Like the article is really explicit about, okay, in order to look at, um, what, what sources can we look at to undertake institutional analysis? And there's a lot, like there's some stuff that you will never get access to um, when you're trying to understand institutional context. You may not get that interview you wanted you may not get those financial records. You may not act, be able to sit in a boardroom when people are making decisions about which money goes where. But you can find out a lot um, there that uh, through public materials, like their websites. Often there are um, textual materials an institution will produce. Spe uh, specifically publicly funded institutions often have to provide um, reports, financial records um, to the public because that's who it serves. So those will often be available on their websites or by through uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and that kind of thing. So I was really, um, I, I, I really wanted to show like this is in, in the context of academic institutions, here's how I went about doing it. But if you, this is a transposable model um, that people can use elsewhere, and, I, and that I hope they do. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening sound by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>